0: Всім доброго ранку, українці. Зараз в мережі дуже багато з'явилось фейкової інформації, що
1: немов, я закликаю складати зброю нашу армію і
2: Значить, так, я тут.
3: For the last week the world has been captivated by these videos from Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky.
1: офісу президента тут.
3: In these videos, he seems to be popping up in different places around Kyiv, sometimes in military fatigues, taunting Putin, calling on his countrymen to fight, and sending a strong message that he's not going anywhere. The thing about Zelensky is, he keeps showing up in the spotlight of so many global events. In just a few years, he went from being a comedian and actor in Ukraine, playing the president on TV, to him probably being elected the actual president of Ukraine then to being center stage in the first impeachment of Donald Trump, to now being a war hero. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm David Betancourt. It's Friday, March 4th. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the career of the Ukrainian president.
1: Um, who are you and what do you do? I am Shane Harris and I cover and
2: What have you been working on? Yeah. This story on Volodymyr Zelensky's comedy- And Siddarsan, where
4: are you right now? I'm in Kyiv, Ukraine.
3: Our producer, Ted Muldoon, talked to reporters around the newsroom about this transformation, about how Zelensky went from an entertainer to a war hero.
5: I wanted to dig into this transformation because until pretty recently, Zelensky's life could not have been more different than it is now. The story of his rise of power begins with this comedy, which, as you'll hear, is pretty hilarious. But first, a quick history lesson.
1: Okay, so when we talk about Zelensky, we have to remember what precedes him. Shane Harris
5: covers national security for The Post.
1: Since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, I mean, it's been an independent country, but it has been a place that has been, generally speaking, within the orbit of Russia and of the Kremlin. In 2014, that starts to change. There is this revolution, sometimes called the Revolution of Dignity, or the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine, in which there are huge protests in the streets. It it becomes very violent. Ultimately, though, it ends up in the ouster of Viktor Yanukovych, who is the president in Ukraine and is allied with the Kremlin. So this is a popular uprising that removes a Moscow-friendly president from Ukraine. And it is this new opening now for the possibility of democracy in Ukraine that is decoupled from Russian influence. Zelensky comes into power some years later.
2: So Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine in 2019, but before that, he was kind of an all-purpose A-list entertainer in Ukraine for a long time. That's Ashley Fetters molloy She's a features reporter for The Post. I know a lot of people have said, you know, he's a former comedian, and that's true. It's almost a little bit reductive, though. Like, yes, he was a comedian, but also he was an actor and a voice actor, producer, comedy writer. Volodymyr Zelensky and Olena Shoptenko. He even won... Dancing with the Stars the first year that Ukraine had its own program.
5: Is there anybody in the U.S. that would be analogous to who he was in Ukraine?
2: I I think a lot of people have gravitated to, like, Jon Stewart or Stephen Colbert. Gotcha. I I myself am more inclined to submit, like, a Wayne Brady-type person. (laughs) Okay. Kind of a funny guy who's actually just, like, got a huge range of talents outside of being funny. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm the only person who's made that comparison, I think. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I mean, to be fair, uh, I feel like Wayne Brady's the... the
5: only one of those people you mentioned that I know can dance, so.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right, right. He started in sketch comedy and kind of branched out to, like, be, you know, amazing at all these musical things and acting things. So, yeah, that's the parallel that I see for sure. Okay,
5: so tell me more about, like, where would Ukrainians know him from in general?
2: Okay, so maybe we start from the beginning here. So he got a law degree, and after that, he went on to instead make this career in comedy. Like, his his career on comedy competition shows in Ukraine was so successful that in the mid-2000s, he was able to form his own comedy troupe and then got a sketch show of his own. So, you know, the first few years he's out there, he's really on a lot of, like, sketch shows and just doing all this sketch comedy that's kind of social and political satire. Oh, interesting. Okay, my recorder's on, and I just want to make sure I get this right in the story. Um... So, your first name is spelled N A T A L I. I spoke to Natalia Roman, and she's a former TV reporter in Ukraine who now teaches at the University of North Florida.
4: Yes, I'm an associate professor, and I teach uh, communication classes mostly journalism, theoretical classes, and research
2: classes. And we talked about Zelensky, and what she told me is that his show, like the one that was his own show, was called Evening Quarter.
0: <laughs> it's you, and it's me.
4: And it was very, very, very popular. And so basically, you would have just uh, what you would call sketches, and it's uh, political and social satire, and that would make fun of politicians.
2: And And this was during a time when she said free speech was a, a big issue in Ukraine. So he's kind of beloved as this like outspoken, kind of idealistic guy. Over the next like decade, after kind of establishing himself as this like TV comedy presence, Zelensky becomes this really beloved star in Ukraine. He does, like I said, Dancing with the Stars, and he wins. He stars in some movies. Some of them are like rom coms, and others are straight comedies. In one of his straight comedies, he even plays like Napoleon invading Russia. So, it, like the, the meme potential of all those <laughs> images is pretty striking.
0: In the
2: Ukrainian dubs of the Paddington movies, he is the voice of Paddington Bear. Paddington,
5: no, in, really?
2: <laughs> yeah, the two, the two Paddington movies. Um, when they came out in Ukraine, they were voiced. The Paddington Bear voice is Vladimir Zelensky. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that the role that really kind of cemented the trajectory of his career, I think you could say, is he has this starring role on this 2015 TV series called Servant of the People. And the premise is pretty simple. He's this high school history teacher, and one of his students catches him on video. Going off on kind of this like impassioned but eloquent tirade of sorts against the political status quo in Ukraine. Yeah. And in this unlikely twist, this high school history teacher becomes the president of Ukraine. <laughs> so, one thing to note here is that, you know, this this becomes a very popular show in Ukraine. Another thing to note here is that starting in 2018, Zelensky forms this political party called Serpent of the People.
5: Wait, so really, so his he makes a party that's named after the title of his show where he plays a president? Yes,
2: that's right. Okay. And the final episodes of Serpent of the People, the show air during the election, and servant of the people of the political party, wins. He
4: won almost 75% of the vote. He won, yeah. he won 73% of the vote. Wow. And so I remember my friends posting that they are the 25% who did not vote for
2: him. Something Natalia said that I thought was really insightful was, you know, so many people in Ukraine were watching this show. It's a lot of the same people who were pretty fed up with the corrupt government in Ukraine that they've had for many years there.
4: My family, they voted for Zelensky. Okay. And when they, when you would ask them, why did you do it? And they said there is no one else.
2: So what they're seeing on their TVs, they're kind of like, man, why can't Ukraine be like this? And then suddenly it's like, oh, <laughs> we can elect the guy who made the show. <laughs> and
3: people translated, you know, those characteristics that he had as a
4: character to, I guess, his uh, image as a
5: president. In a way that it seems like the show is almost a campaign promise of the vision of what Zelensky hopes to, like, do for Ukraine.
2: Yeah, and the way that Natalia put it was um, she remembers his campaign was actually the, the policy proposals were somewhat vague.
4: When he was running for a president, he did not um, talk much about his... Uh he lives or his, uh, he didn't have much of a program, you know, like uh,
6: American politicians
2: have. But the show kind of stood in for that. Like a lot of people, I think, kind of understood implicitly, you know, if this is a person who made a show that is so sensitive to the needs and concerns of real Ukrainian people, perhaps this is a person who should be in office. <laughs>
1: Good morning, Ukraine. Today on the 20th of May, the 6th President of Ukraine will be taking an oath of
3: allegiance.
0: I, Vladimir Zelenskyy, elected by the will of the people as the President of Ukraine, to the best of my ability, assuming this I, Representative, do
4: solemnly swear allegiance to Ukraine. I pledge with all my undertakings to
2: protect the sovereignty and independence of
1: Ukraine. Pam, let me go to you first. You have seen the log.
0: What
1: does it say?
2: All right, well, this is five-page transcript. It appears to be a nearly complete transcript of the July call, Poppy, where President Trump asked Ukrainian President Zelensky several times to collaborate with Attorney General Barr and his attorney, uh, Rudy Giuliani, his private attorney, to look into Biden and his son, Hunter. Now, we should note...
1: Most Americans know President Zelensky when he appeared as a central player in the first impeachment of former President Donald Trump.
5: That's Shane Harris again. We asked Shane to take us back in time to when many Americans first heard of Zelensky, not in the context of war in Ukraine, but in the context of the first impeachment of Trump and this infamous phone call.
1: The two of them had a phone call, which has now become sort of notorious, in July of 2019, in which President Trump was heard pressuring President Zelensky to do essentially political favors for him in exchange for aid and support to Ukraine. When's the last time you looked back over the transcript of that phone call? Uh, before today? <laughs> it's been a while. Okay.
5: Okay. So, I mean, thinking back then on some of the excerpts and some of the main details, I'm sure that are burned into your memory, what things read differently to you now in the context of what's happened over the last week?
1: What I see that makes that stands out more now in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the you know, degree to which President Zelensky as any president of Ukraine would to any American president, is so concerned with having American support, with the United States having his back. But now that we've seen that, you know, how desperate he was for American support, it gives a kind of almost tragic element to that call uh, and, and to lots of things that we look in retrospect of Zelensky kind of pleading with the Americans, you know, diplomatically, of course, to to support him and to stand with Ukraine against Russia.
5: So thinking back to the context of that phone call, what kind of support was he looking for?
1: The support that they wanted back then was they wanted arms to defend themselves against the Russian military, particularly Javelin anti-tank missiles. They wanted money to modernize their military. I think that they wanted political commitments that European countries stood with them, stood with them as a democracy, stood with them as a bulwark against Russia. Now, that is to some degree a lot of talk. What we're seeing now is, you know, is to what degree were European countries really prepared to admit Ukraine into the fold of Europe more formally, right? Mm-hmm. We're now seeing that Ukraine has applied for fast-track admission to the European Union, and they are getting support for that from other European Union member countries. That's a political union. That's not necessarily going to repel the Russian invasion, question of whether Ukraine would be admitted to NATO was always a controversy. It was always something that I think NATO members were trying to put off precisely because they did not want to provoke Russia and antagonize Russia. Mm. But, you know, it's not as though... You know, Europe was embracing Ukraine as you know the darling of democracy or the bulwark in the great fight against Russia.
5: Okay. So these are all the things that are kind of playing out in the background for President Zelensky. And President Trump also kind of like hints at these things, right?
1: Yeah. So the President has this critique that basically is I'm your friend and the Europeans don't do anything for you. He he says as I'm quoting here from the transcript. I will say that we do a lot for Ukraine, we being the United States. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time, much more than the European countries are doing, and they should be helping you more than they are. Germany does almost nothing for you. All they do is talk, and I think it's something you should really ask them about. I was speaking to Angela Merkel. She talks Ukraine, but she doesn't do anything. And he goes on to criticize the European countries for basically being all talk and no action. When it's the United States that's the one, you know, giving you javelin missiles or we're going to give you money. In retrospect, I mean, the critique, it, it's not off in the sense that, you know, it's not as though the European Union was rallying to the support of Ukraine. It, it, obviously, you know, Ukraine was not admitted to NATO. But now when Trump talks about that, the Europeans do nothing for you, we should also be very clear. Trump is not seeing that through the lens of, you know, politics and, you know, ideology and standing with your allies, he's seeing it in a much more kind of tactical kind of way. It's like, what have they done for you lately? Because what he wants is to extract a commitment from Zelensky to do something for him. So it's a very difficult, fraught conversation that two of them are having it feels very, it's like gangster tactics, which, you know, I mean, Zelensky's no dummy, right? And frankly, he's from Ukraine. It's a very corrupt country (laughs) where he's probably used to people talking (laughs) like this.
5: What do you mean by that? Like, what kind of corruption?
1: I mean, where do you begin with corruption in Ukraine? I mean, it it is consistently ranked as one of the most Corrupt countries in the world when it comes to things like self-dealing, government officials using their position to enrich themselves, people using positions of regulatory or prosecutorial authority to to get money, to extract favors— I mean, it is It is just, it's a country where corruption is endemic.
5: Gotcha, gotcha. How much was Zelensky really buying into this sort of Hunter Biden conspiracy that Trump was trying to bring up
1: on this phone call? Yeah, no, he didn't buy into it. I mean, Zelensky is like, you know, is walking a tightrope in this situation because he understands at this point, because he's been hearing about it from his own aides who are in touch with Trump's people, that they want him to, you know, basically help ignite this conspiracy theory about Hunter Biden and say, well, we are investigating these things that happen. Zelensky doesn't want any part of this. He doesn't want to get in the middle of a political fight. He's conveyed that message already through his advisors back to people in the White House, like leave us out of what is clearly a political battle that you are waging here.
5: What was it that Zelensky wanted most to get out of Trump on this phone call himself?
1: I think what Zelensky wants most from Trump is commitment. And that commitment he wants expressed in a couple of ways. One, he wants aid. He wants weapons, right? These are things that, you know, have been promised. There are aid packages that are being readied to go to Ukraine. And he wants those, but he also wants public demonstration of commitment from the American president to Ukraine. He wants, he has wanted up to this point, a meeting with Trump where they can have cameras, they can have reporters. Ideally, it would be at the White House. He wants to be able to be seen, literally seen, standing shoulder to shoulder with the American president so that Russia knows the Americans are with Ukraine. That is the message that he is trying to convey You know, quite desperately, I think. Which is not to say that Zelensky thinks that if he gets a photo op in the White House, Vladimir Putin won't dare invade Ukraine. It's much more complicated than that. But he needs to shore up that relationship, I think. Because in his mind, I think he's thinking, look, I need to convey to Vladimir Putin that there are going to be costs if you invade my country.
0: And it's an honor to be with you. And we spoke a couple of times, as you probably remember. So
5: the phone call happens in July of 2019, and Zelensky finally gets a meeting with Trump at the United Nations in New York in September of 2019, just as all the news around this phone call is blowing up.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to me to be here. And uh, it's better to be on TV than by phone.
5: Yeah. I think. <laughs> Did anything of substance come out of that meeting?
1: Not really. I mean, I think that the meeting... It it seemed kind of frosty. I mean, the, I remember the images of it, of Trump sitting there doing what he always did, where he kind of like has his shoulders, you know, hunched forward and his fingers are tented between his legs. And he's just kind of sitting there with a the frosty look on his face. And he's not really into this. Yeah. And Zelensky's kind of, you know, he looks a little happier. He's kind of chipper.
0: It's a country, I think, with tremendous potential.
1: Yes, I know it because I'm from that country.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> He's, like, there at the United Nations with the American president. Right.
5: And this is, like, for him the thing that he needs, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that the White House very much understood that they needed to make sure that the threat was seen with Zelensky, too. So it didn't reinforce the idea that, oh, no, we're definitely not meeting with you until you investigate Hunter Biden.
3: And I I want to thank you for uh, invitation to uh, Washington. You invited me. But I think, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but but I think you forgot to tell me the date.
0: Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear.
1: It doesn't take long after Joe Biden is elected and then inaugurated for there to be another flare-up in the Ukraine-Russia crisis. So in the spring of 2021, there's this buildup of Russian forces at the Ukrainian border, which in retrospect, I think some people might even look at as kind of a dress rehearsal in some ways. There's a positioning of forces. There are supplies that are put there. Ultimately, Russia does not invade, of course, but it leaves a lot of these supplies in position and it's a signal clearly from Russia that it has once again got eyes on Ukraine and has designs on Ukraine. And I, and I mean that like in the context of what happened in 2014 when they invaded Crimea and they took portions of, of eastern Ukraine in these so-called breakaway republics. So that crisis is kind of front and center again. Ukraine again appeals to Europe. It says, you know, it basically it's renewing its calls to speed up the process by which it gets admitted to NATO. That doesn't ultimately happen And things sort of die down a bit.
4: Today, President Biden hosted Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House. They discussed the
5: next meeting that Zelensky gets with American President, President Biden, happens in September of 2021. It's
0: an honor and a pleasure to welcome President Zelensky uh, to the White House, to the Oval Office.
1: When Biden comes in, the meeting that he has with Zelensky, I think, is much more like the one that Zelensky had always wanted. It's in the Oval Office. There's a lot of mutual admiration and affection and commitment between the two of them.
5: Today we're going to discuss how the U.S. can continue to support Ukraine as it advances
1: its democratic reforms, agenda, and movement toward being completely integrated in Europe. Biden talks about... The support for Ukraine, we're going to be giving you money. We're going to be giving you assistance. Uh, Ukraine is talking about all it's trying to do to fight COVID. Remember, the pandemic is raging at this point. And so there's a kind of a signal that the political relationship is much less fraught. It's much more even right now. At the same time, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Yeah. Ukraine is not a member of the EU. Yeah. It's not as though, you know, President Biden has gone to the Oval Office to say, And should Russia ever invade you, I will send American troops to defend you. That part of the relationship is still exactly like it was when when Trump was in office. So, you know, Zelensky is getting the kind of expressions of commitment and good feeling that he wants from an American president. Ultimately, we know that didn't really amount to very much at all. Mm -hmm. As the forces, Russian forces started building up on the border of Ukraine, the Biden White House starts to get very nervous about two things, broadly. One, the buildup of military forces on the border of Ukraine. And two, that President Zelensky does not seem to be taking seriously the threat that looks to be building towards his country. So in early December of 2021, the Biden administration puts out, and we publish, Satellite images that show this massive buildup of Russian forces along the border with borders with Ukraine. And it puts front and center the question of is Russia preparing to invade Ukraine, which, of course, forces Zelensky to have to start addressing these issues. And what you see consistently from him and from his aides is a downplaying of the threat. You know, we don't think Russia's really trying to invade. You know, we urge our American friends, you know, tamp down the rhetoric. You're scaring people. You're going to ignite a panic. We need to not have a financial crisis in this country, a run on banks. There's really this sense both that they think that scaring people is worse than the potential threat, but that also Russia is not going to invade. And it's really vexing to people in the White House who don't think that Zelensky has his head in the game. They think that he genuinely is not being honest about What the White House thinks is not a certainty, but a high likelihood that Russia is going to cross that border. Well,
5: that's what seems so confusing to me, is that it's been one of his priorities to get a face-to-face meeting with the American president in order to kind of dissuade Putin from doing exactly that. So clearly, the threat of invasion is something that he must be considering. So why those two things seem at odds with each other?
1: They seem at odds to me, too. And I'm still trying to figure that out because... Both from what I heard Zelensky saying and in my own conversations, particularly with a senior advisor to him in the run up to the invasion, it seemed like this very palpable disconnect, right? Where you're the president of a country that has already been invaded once by Russia. You have explicitly said you need the Americans to stand with you, to give you money, to give you support, to give you weapons. There's a force that could go as high as 175,000 troops on your border. Why aren't you taking this more seriously? The best explanation I can come up with is that President Zelensky was genuinely concerned about panicking his citizens. Mm. He did not want to weaken his own position, potentially, any more than it was. He didn't want to harm the economy, which is already in a kind of a fragile state in this midst of this pandemic. So, you know, is there something to that? Possibly. Maybe Zelensky was just sort of holding out hope over experience uh, in this case, It is certainly the case that once the invasion has begun, President Zelensky has taken it completely seriously. I mean, and has in some ways transformed himself now as a national leader. I mean, I look at the President Zelensky that is filming himself in these videos saying, I am here, I am in Kiev. You know, the advisor I talked to who, you know, was downplaying a threat of an invasion now said, told me the other day, Zelensky is prepared to die fighting. And he doesn't even look like the same person anymore. There has been this very dramatic transformation from the comedian turned improbable president to this, you know, wartime leader who is sort of has these Churchillian kind of overtones to him now. He is a performer. And I don't mean to to say that there's nothing sincere about what he's doing, but he does understand how he has to play in the moment. And I do wonder if what he was doing before the invasion was trying to project that air of calm, don't freak people out, don't panic them, even though he could see as well as anybody what was, you know, practically breathing down his neck.
4: What I'm impressed is how much he has been able to motivate the population.
5: Siddarsan Raghavan is in Kiev right now covering the invasion for the post.
4: There's really a cohesive resistance going on. I mean, there are everyone from, you know, teenagers to elderly people who have decided to take up arms and, and fight off the Russians. And a of that has to do with his leadership and, and his ability to motivate and inspire Ukrainians. Everyone now, whether they liked him or not, whether they voted for him or not, are on his side because Ukrainians see a bigger problem, that is Russia. So one of the most indelible scenes I've, I saw and I visited was a visit to to a underground bunker it was underneath a cafe actually in which you walk down these narrow stairs and and it gets darker as you go in and then you turn right and you pass a set of bathrooms that are non-functional and as you emerge you kind of emerge into a kind of a boiler room setting and people there volunteers there were making Molotov cocktails so what's your name? Uh, my name is Valery. It's
5: Valery. And your last name? Uh, Valiev. So we're from the Washington Post newspaper.
4: How- That's our colleague,
5: Shivana Gray, who's also in Kiev with Sidarsin. If you're a regular listener, you might remember the scene. We had a bit of this story on the show earlier this week.
4: Uh, we are making uh, molotovs for Russian troops, yes, so... And the guy running the, the whole operation downstairs was a guy named Valery Valiev, and he was 17 years
1: old. Sounds like that. And how did you learn how to make Molotovs?
4: Uh, <laughs> just, just ordinary uh, skill in Ukraine, <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, um. he was a, um, a university student, and uh, you saw this as his contribution to the fighting, um, to, to the war effort. He had, uh, you know, just left his dormitory this past week to join the war effort. Partly what's motivated him is his support for President Vladimir Zelensky.
3: Uh, I had a lot of uh, problems with uh, government. I mean, I didn't like them before the war started, uh, but now he is the leader who will uh, who will bring our nation to the victory. Before the
4: war, you know, like many Ukrainians, valiev wasn't the president's biggest fan. What was the biggest problem you had with uh, President uh, From
3: I mean, from poli- about political problems, like maybe corruption in his team, political team, maybe using different people who had pro-Russian uh, vision mm-hmm. of in, in Ukraine,
4: you know, he was concerned about what he perceived as Zelensky's kind of overly compromising attitude towards Russia, to the point of even including some pro-Russian appointees in, in his government. But then the invasion began.
3: But today he is uh, the hero. I mean, yes, today he is the he is the
4: proudness of our nation. <laughs> and suddenly, Zelensky himself made a remarkable transformation. He started to become an almost impeccable wartime president. This is something I've been hearing all around Kiev. I'm not it, a fan it.
1: of this guy, but now in this situation, I'm a fan, fan of this Zelensky guy because he's staying with us in Kiev.
4: So it's the right choice to stay with us, fight with us. His messaging suddenly became constant. He was on social media almost
1: Daily. добрий вечір. Лідер фракції тут. Голова офісу президента тут.
4: Putting out videos of him in the streets of Ukraine, defiantly speaking out against uh,
1: Russia.
4: He started to urge Ukrainians to rise up and fight.
1: We already giving weapons, and we to give Всім всім.
3: And
4: I think one significant thing which he didn't do really appealed to many, most Ukrainians, he didn't flee.
5: So, what has President Zelensky's reputation been in Ukraine in the months leading up to the invasion?
4: Okay, so in the months leading up to the invasion, Zelensky's reputation was mixed. He was perceived as weak, overly compromising to Russia, unable to rid corruption and bring in much needed judicial reforms. You know, he was, you know, Zelensky was even Downplaying the prospects of a the possibility of a Russian invasion to the point where, like Zelensky's government, made no evacuation plans for civilians. There was no uh, bolstering of defenses uh, along the border. But then the invasion happened, and you know he's been using his social media skills, which is actually what is what helped him win the election. He es- essentially rose up to the challenge as a wartime president, and this is all basically an in-your-face. At Putin and Moscow, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell Moscow that, look, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Come and get me if you can. I dare you. He's out in the open. He's uh, he's basically telling the Russians, come and get me. And he's and he and he look, here I am. I'm in the middle of the street. My family's here. I'm not going anywhere. And uh, you know, I'm here to stop you. And so so is every Ukrainian here. And what do
5: we know about the steps he's taken to kind of evade being identified where he is?
4: It's as far as we can tell, he's not making any effort to hide himself. I mean, I mean, one just earlier today uh, I was in a the hotel I'm staying at. Another uh, a cameraman came up, and the first thing he showed me was a selfie he had taken with Zelensky in the background. It was just happened a, a few hours earlier. Like you know, this cameraman is able to walk in and basically be in the same place where where the president Zelensky was. Uh, he's obviously got security guards around him, uh, details like like any other leader. But he seems pretty much you know he's not making any effort to hide himself. The Russians could easily take him out. I mean, the Russians got technology. They can hack into the phones. They've got sophisticated ways of tracking people. Almost without a doubt, the Russians know exactly where Zelensky is, and yet he remains. And, uh, you know, he could easily become the target of a of an airstrike, or if the Russians were to enter the country, you could easily see Russian ground troops going and capturing Zelensky and, and ferreting him out of the country or even killing him on the spot. Who knows? Yet he's here
5: I feel like it's there's two things that strike me about his background, you know, as an entertainer. It seems like one I couldn't imagine a background that would better prepare you for the theater of those videos and the theater of what he's doing when he pops up kind of taunting Putin.
1: Yep, yep.
5: And two, the transformation you're talking about, it seems like that's part of what has made his case so compelling. When he asks, like, you know, average Ukrainians to take up arms to go fight, you know, being like, you're a law student, you're a doctor, but take up arms and go defend your country, it just, it comes off so much more authentic, I think, and compelling coming from somebody who himself was not trained to be a politician, who was not trained to be kind of a military leader.
1: I I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, in addition to being a very effective communicator... This is Shane Harris again. He seems so authentic. He's not only not a politician, he's elected as a kind of anti-politician. And so I think that when he is there... In these videos, you know, looking like he hasn't slept in days and he's in military fatigues, I think what he's saying is, I am one of you. We are together in this. The heartbreaking aspect of this, of course, is that here we are seeing Zelensky in this moment, but the future does not look great for him. I mean, Ukraine is mounting a very fierce response right now. They are making more gains than I think a lot of people thought they would, certainly in the United States. They're surprising people. But Russia has a vastly bigger and technologically superior military. You know, if you were laying bets right now, you would probably have to pick Russia as possibly the victor. Or, you know, there's some kind of negotiated settlement after many, many, many people die. And Zelensky could be one of them. He knows, just like we all know, the Americans aren't coming to his rescue. Europe is not coming to his rescue. They can give him bombs, they can give him guns, they can give him anti-tank missiles, they might even give him airplanes, they can give him money. They're not going to give him soldiers. He's on his own. And I think that message, too, must be something that resonates very deeply with the people he's talking to, because he's saying, this is our fight, no one is coming to help us, and I need you now. And people appear to be answering that call.
3: Shane Harris, Ashley Fetters Malloy, and Siddharth and Raghavan are reporters for The Post. Whitney Shefty and Siobhan O'Grady contributed reporting. Ted Muldoon produced and scored this story. After the break, one more thing about
0: Batman. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day?
3: You may not know this, but when I'm not here filling in a post reports, I'm the comic book culture reporter here at the Washington Post. And yes, I do know that sounds like a cool job. And it is. The news today and over the last couple of weeks has been terrifying, horrible, sad. But one of the few things that has given me a little bit of joy going to the weekend is that we've got a new Batman movie coming out. The Batman, directed by Matt Reeves and starring Robert Pattinson.
0: Fear is a tool. When that light hits the sky it's not just a call it's a warning
3: I saw this movie at a press screening a couple of weeks ago and I'm seeing it again tomorrow I liked it so much going to the theater wearing my mask because the movie was just that good so I'm actually old enough to remember when Warner Brothers and DC Comics were the kings of superhero cinema going back to Christopher Reeve's Superman movies Michael Keaton's Batman movies There was a time where only they could make good superhero movies long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe was even a thing. But for a younger generation that's been watching movies for the last 10 years, it's likely you think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the only thing that matters when it comes to superhero entertainment. But it's not. DC, back in the day, was a big deal. And the Batman is bringing them back to that status. So you ready to go? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Uh, So the first question I have for you, Matt, is... What was it about Robert? So I had a chance to talk to Matt Reeves, the director of The Batman, who, like myself, is a huge Batman fan. Grew up watching the old TV shows, all the cartoons, read all the comic books. This is a guy that has the Batman mythos encoded in his DNA. And it's a very big deal for him to be directing this movie and creating a new iteration of Batman on the big screen.
6: I'm a big Batman fan. I mean, I was born in 1966. That was the year that Adam West started playing Batman.
3: One of the biggest questions I had for Reeves was about his decision to cast British actor Robert Pattinson in the role of Batman. This was a casting choice that was met with a lot of question marks online, which is old hat for Batman castings. If you go all the way back to Michael Keaton being cast as Batman, back when he'd only been known for Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice, or Ben Affleck being cast recently as Batman, a lot of times these casting decisions, when it comes to a character that's so popular in pop culture, aren't met with open arms from the the perspective fandom. But... Reeve saw something in Pattinson, uh, especially his post-Twilight career when he got past being the hunky vampire and started taking on roles that were a little bit, you know, not so poppy. But once Reeve saw Pattinson in the movie Good Time, he was convinced that he was the right actor for the role.
6: There was something in that that just made me obsessed because he's so, he's got such a dangerous, out-of-control, driven, mad quality. But he also has an almost like Montgomery Cliff, you know, Marlon Brando vulnerability under all of that, I started writing the movie for him without knowing if he'd ever want to play the role. And that was a little bit scary because I thought, I remember talking to my producing partner, Dylan Clark, I said, you know, what if he doesn't want to do it? <laughs> this would be really bad. Um, and he did.
3: Just as important the reason who was going to play Batman was the actress he would cast as Batman's sometimes nemesis, sometimes love interest Catwoman
6: she's come by, you know, she's an orphan too. She's come by her scars just as honorably as his and that he's kind of naive about understanding what it takes to survive and all of that. It was really about making her feel like a powerful survivor and, and a strong female character.
3: So reason ended up casting Zoe Kravitz in the role of Catwoman. Zoe Kravitz is the fourth Black actress to portray Catwoman in some way, going back to Eartha Kitt in the old Adam West show, Halle Berry in the Catwoman movie, Sanaa Lathan has voiced Catwoman in the Harley Quinn cartoon, and now you've got Zoe Kravitz playing Catwoman in the Batman. Reeves said they were aware of the history that this character has in terms of historic performances, including Michelle Pfeiffer back in Batman Returns in 1992. But Zoe Kravitz wanted to make the role her own, and she looked to the comic books for inspiration to do that.
6: Zoe connected to, she was like, I want to do that hair. She wanted to do the whole thing. She wanted, she wanted to do things right out of the comics. And there were certain things, even like the idea of the tank top. She was like, That's, there was an image she brought to me, and she said, can we do this image? And so we looked to the comics, and um, she was really a big part of trying to bring a lot of um, specific detail into her role that I, I, just, I, I really enjoyed working with.
3: So one thing I had to ask Reeves was about my favorite comic book character ever, Robin the Boy Wonder, of which there have been many in the comics. Robin hasn't been seen suited up in a movie since Chris O'Donnell was doing it back in Joel Schumacher's Batman movies of the late 90s. But I asked Reeves, could a character like Robin the Boy Wonder make a debut in his reimagining of Gotham City, which is so dark, you almost think maybe a character like Robin wouldn't fit in there.
6: The idea of a Robin story, I think, could be really powerful. It could be really cool. And yes, of course, it would also bring a different spirit into it. How and when we would do that, I don't, because I actually don't, I can't tell you what we're doing next, but I do find the idea of doing a Robin story really intriguing.
3: Matt Reeves is a director of The Batman in theaters everywhere today. And if you'd like more of my opinions on The Batman, check out the column I wrote that published today online. We'll put a link in our show notes if you want to check it out. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Platnik and Renice Furnoski are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm David Betancourt. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow with a special exclusive episode from The Washington Post.
0: The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.